Shana Tova, everyone, and Gutiar, Happy New Year. Now, as I'm sure you know, maybe you don't, but you will very shortly. Uh, as you know, we are uh, blessed with a large congregation. And as you all know, I have an email account, which means I get lots of jokes sent to me throughout the year. You should also know most of these jokes I can't repeat, which for the record defeats the purpose of sending them to me. So before you hit the send button, ask yourself, could the rabbi repeat this question in the crowd of people? But every now and then, one of them hits my inbox that I say to myself, maybe, perhaps, this could be the one that I use in my Rosh Hashanah sermon. And this is the one. So there's a story of a fleeing ISIS terrorist, desperate for water, plodding through the desert. When he sees something off in a distance, hoping to find water, he runs to it. And when he gets there, he finds this old Jewish man standing by a display rack selling ties. And the terrorist asks him, do you have water? And the Jewish man says, I have no water. But would you like to buy a tie? They're only $5. The terrorist then begins to shout hysterically at him, you're an idiot, I don't need this Western wastefulness, I spit in your ties, I need water. I'm sorry, he says, I have no water, just ties, pure silk, and only $5. He says, I curse your ties, and if I had the energy, I would take one of them and wrap it around your neck, but I have to find water. Okay, the old Jewish man says, it doesn't bother me that you don't want my ties, and it doesn't bother me that you want to kill me. I'm going to be bigger than all of that. So now, if you continue over that hill to the east for about two miles, you will find a restaurant. And it has the finest food and all the ice-cold water that you would want. I bless you. Go in peace, the old Jewish man says. And the desperate terrorist staggers away over the hill. And then several hours later, the terrorist crawls back, almost dead and gasping from thirst. And he tells the old Jewish man, they won't let me in without a tie. <laughs> it's a nice man. My father's family's roots are German. And aside from some wasted hours in an airport in Frankfurt, I've never been there. We live in a global world, and it can be hard to remember that there was a time when Jews avoided all things German, music, books, cars, the land itself. The argument was, how could you give money to murderers? Today, it's an altogether silly argument because none of the people who live in Germany today are guilty of anything. There is guilt to be sure to be laid on the shoulders of their parents and grandparents, but on them, how could it be? Which is to say there is no compelling argument to boycott anything German because first, Jews don't believe in collective guilt, and second, we don't believe in punishing children for the sins of their parents. And yet, people tell me how walking through a, Jew a German airport and seeing posters and signs in German are disturbing but we comfortably drive BMWs, enjoy music with Sennheiser headphones, and we drink our Gewurztraminer, which tells us two things about Jews. One, we have long and strong memories, and two, we don't hate very well. <laughs> but this past summer, my wife Lisa and I went to Germany. 
And as anyone who, can gone, who has gone can attest that the story of the death of six million Jews is alive and well. Maybe arguably better in Germany than anywhere else in the world. Because in Germany there is no forgetting. There is no obfuscation. There is no milquetoast revisionism blaming someone else for the obliteration of a third of the world's Jews. There is no ignoring in Germany the murder of one and a half million Jewish children. You will find that in Hungary, and in Poland, and in France, and in Denmark, but not in Germany. I told my Italian neighbor that we went to Berlin, and she said to me, how nice. You must have had a wonderful time. I told the congregant we went to Berlin, and she leaned in and whispered to me, really? How did you find him? Which is to say the Jews don't go to Europe simply. Where once great homes and businesses were in Jewish hands, where within blocks there was a universe of Jewish genius and faith and commerce and community, today we now see museums and we chase ghosts. For a Jew, every trip to Europe is too much. There is too much beauty and there is too much betrayal. There is too much music and too many death marches. There is too much art and too much cruelty. I once read in Vienna that, that they had a hundred synagogues before the Second World War, and today one survives. It couldn't be burned by the Nazis because it had been built beneath an archive. The small museum at the concentration camp of Theresienstadt holds art and music and some of the literature that survived the war, and a short walk from that museum is a small river where the ashes of 22,000 Jews murdered were dumped into during the war. And you can imagine standing there to feel not only the searing pain imagining their last horrible moments of parents clinging to their children, of loved ones whispering their final words, but also that the extermination of the Jews was a self-inflicted wound from which Europe has never recovered. Heinrich Heine, the great German poet, a Jew and philosopher, once said that there could be no Germany without Jews, so nothing in Europe can evoke our uncomplicated love. Berlin and Prague and Vienna aren't backwater third world colonies. They are where Beethoven composed and Schubert is revered and Mozart premiered his greatest works. Buchenwald, is named for the oak tree where the German poet Goethe had wrote his genius a hundred years before it became a death camp. The cafes are where Freud and Mahler, Einstein and Schoenberg, Jung and Mann, where they sip their coffee. In other words, Europe proves that no level of cultural accomplishment will inoculate you against hatred and its brutal results. There are a thousand places across Europe that prove how lethal anti-Semitism is. But in Berlin and the other great cities of Europe, we learn something else. It is the proof that sophistication is no shield. In Berlin, we learn that professors are not more ethical than farmers. In Berlin, we learn that artists were not necessarily kinder than engineers. In Berlin, we learn that doctors were no more compassionate than factory workers. Jews across Europe were saved by diplomats and by nuns, by school teachers and by soldiers. In Berlin, we learned then 
what is true now. The character and courage is everything. Or I'll put it this way. This past year, Netflix brought to my TV and to yours the hit Israeli TV series, Fauda. I watched it because I had heard that all of Israel was alight with the story that between both Israelis, Jews, and Arabs themselves. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I won't ruin it for you. But Fauda tells the story of an Israeli operative named Doron who comes out of retirement to pursue a blood-soaked terrorist named the Panther who had slipped through his fingers years earlier. It tells the painful story of people wanting peace, of how life becomes cheap, and the methods that people will sink to to carve a small piece of safety for them and their families to live. At a pivotal moment, Daron's brother-in-law is captured by the panther, and in return, Daron captures their imam, who has information as to where the panther is and his plans for a devastating attack in Tel Aviv. And when the news of the imam's capture reaches the panther, his assistant is bewildered to see that the panther is not afraid. After all, the assistant tells him, the Israelis will go to any end to free his brother-in-law. They will go to any end to scuttle their plans, and they will go to any end to kill the panther himself. And he says to his assistant, I'm not afraid, because the imam will not give the Jews what they want. The imam, the panther says, will not break. And his assistant shakes his head and he tells him, but everyone breaks. Everyone. And in the end, the imam breaks. And in the end, the panther breaks too. But is it true? Is it true that everyone breaks? That me and you and us, do we all have a point where we will give up and abandon while we care for and love? And if there is, if everyone breaks, then what does courage and character mean anyway? Is it only a byproduct of time and circumstance? And as we stand on the cusp of a new year, we stand in the shadow of people who stood on the cusp of a new land. Thousands of years earlier, the Israelites stood on the banks of the Jordan River, and as they stood ready to enter and cross over, Moses says one thing, and just one thing to them, guard your soul carefully. And for me, this is the, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Torah. Because there they are about to enter the land that they left Egypt for, the land that they wandered a desert for. And Moses doesn't tell them how to build homes or establish schools or build cities. It is there that their leader tells them that of all the things that lay before them, the soul is the one thing that they need to care for the most. Because in Judaism, we don't distinguish between the word for soul and the word for life. Freed from slavery, free from wandering now, with time to build their homes and wealth, would they reach their goal only to lose their souls? And if they did, what was the point of leaving Egypt anyway? You see, in the visible world, we live out our routine. We have our jobs and we have our families and our homes. 
On the outside, our lives seem ordinary. It is only beneath the surface of this world that the real and unseen drama of your life is unfolding. Because you are not just given a soul, your soul is meant to be made, which is to say that we are not meant to be victims, but makers of who we will be. Life cannot only be, what will be about what will happen to you, but life is about having some kind of idea and dream and plan and aspiration of what you want from life. It also says that you will suffer failure and you will taste success. It says that you will feel pain and you will celebrate joy. Because becoming the person that you want to be will not only take time, but also care and effort. On Rosh Hashanah, we are taught that the direction of your soul is the direction of your life. Do you know why Germany tells the story of the Holocaust better than anyone else? It's because they know it better. Yes, more Jews died in Poland and in Lithuania and the Netherlands, but their deaths were designed and made in Germany. In 1933, Hitler assumes power, and he quickly dismantles a society ruled by law. Overnight, Germany becomes a place of two kinds of people, Nazis and those who aren't. The German historian Joachim Fesch tells the story of his father at that fateful hour. His father was a community leader and a respected head of school in Berlin. They were descendants from a long line of classic Prussians. In short, they were the kind of people the Nazis looked to have on their side, and they were the kind of people that having Hitler in power would make their lives even better. But when they came and invited his father to join the Nazi party, he told them no. Already then, in 1936, he knew. He had seen the lawlessness and the cruelty and the bigotry. Friends of his who were Jews were banned from their professions. They were forced to wear yellow stars. They had their phone lines cut off. They were prohibited from sitting on park benches, from walking through forests, prohibited from subscribing to German newspapers or magazines. They were forbidden to owning pets and even riding bicycles. Because Fesch's father had said no, he was suspended from his job. Three months later, they returned and asked him again. And again, he said no. Neighbors stopped talking to him. He was fired from his job. His children were, were removed from their school. His family was plunged into poverty. The Gestapo units regularly broke into their house and threatened them. And as the Germans rolled into their victories in Poland and in France and the Netherlands, it looked as if he had made a terrible choice. And he was now on the wrong side of history. The thing is, we now know that how the history ended. And Fesch tells us that, 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 the, that most Germans didn't resist. And by the time they regained their senses, it was too late. By the time they woke up, it was far gone. They were already broken. And at the end of the book, Fesch tells us the question he asks his father just before he dies. He asks him, how did you resist? How did you not break when everyone else did? And his father leaned in and told him, because we are not little people. 
we are not little people. Which is to say that you are not destined to break. It is to say that you are not destined to surrender, to give up on the things that you love and care for. By caring for your soul, you find the courage and character to build the life that you have dreamed of. Rosh Hashanah calls your soul, and the shul is the place that we come to to guard it. Last year I told you that our mission is to open the doors of the synagogue as wide as we could. And we've done that. If you come to the shul only three times a year, I'm going to ask you that you come four times a year at least. Just one more time this year. And in fact, come on a weekday. I want you to see the throngs of the children and the young families who come and rely on what we do. That's why this year we're going to be launching a campaign to reimagine this building. More rooms for family programming, a modernized school wing, a careful but imaginative refurbishing of our sanctuary with improved handicap accessibility here and throughout the building. And why should you support a campaign like this? I have only one reason. You should support it so we can make more Jews like you. Statistics show over and over again that Jews who give to secular causes almost always give more to every other cause, including Jewish causes, because that is what Jewish hearts and souls do. The reason to give to a synagogue is that we build those hearts and souls. No Jewish institution even comes close. And people give to synagogues in order to ensure that their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren have the values and traditions that shape and form your life. I became a rabbi because I believe that we are not little people. And I believe the message that built this congregation and built our people needs to be given over and over, again and again, generation to generation. Because years ago, I met a successful lawyer who spends time volunteering in refugee camps in the Congo and Sudan, bringing solo cookers and food to them. One night in a tent treating women who had been serially abused for years, she was asked, why are you here? And she thought to herself, I can't say because I'm Jewish, because they don't know what that is. And after a long pause, she turned and said to her, I am here because I'm from a very ancient tribe. Our tribe for 3,500 years has been teaching that every person is in God's image. And that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here. Remember what God says to Abraham. That I will bless you. And you will be a blessing. So may you be blessed this year. And may you be a blessing. Shana Tovah.